Okay, what do pole dancing, AI chatbots, and diet culture all have in common? They're all topics explored on Embodied, the award-winning weekly podcast from UNC, North Carolina Public Radio. Each week on Embodied, acclaimed journalist Anita Rao tackles difficult conversations around the taboos of sex and health and relationships to answer important questions about our bodies and our society. Just like reimagining love, nothing is off limits from the history of hookup culture to an exploration of how mental health affects our relationships. So go ahead and follow Embodied wherever you get your podcasts and make sure that you tell them I sent you. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to another one of our deep dive episodes in which we unpack and explore a relationship topic. Today, we are going to be talking about something that therapists call the overfunctioning, underfunctioning dynamic. And this is a doozy. I hope that you are well caffeinated. Maybe you're taking me on a walk because we have got a lot of ground to cover. It's going to be thick. It's going to be rich. It's going to, I think, leave you with some really important insights and ideas and new ways of looking at and thinking about your relationships. So when I say over-functioning, under-functioning dynamic, it's a fancy way of basically talking about one partner doing too much and the other partner doing not enough. So this episode has got three parts. Part one, I am going to define and operationalize the over-functioning, under-functioning dynamic. Part two, I'm going to offer you a relational self-awareness informed framework for thinking about the over-functioning, under-functioning dynamic. And you know, if you've been listening to the show for a bit, that whenever we are creating a relational self-awareness informed framework around any topic, We attend to three realms. Realm one, the cultural realm. So we ask questions like, what are the bigger cultural narratives that shape how people think about and experience the dynamic? Realm two, the interpersonal. What is happening in the space between the two people? Realm three, the intrapsychic. What is happening inside of each person? So that's what we're going to do in part two of this episode. And then part three of the episode, of course, we're going to explore how to disrupt this pattern. I will spend a little bit of time talking directly to the partner who is in the overfunctioning role, and I will offer a few self-reflection questions. And then I will talk directly to the partner who's in the underfunctioning role and give a few self-reflection questions there too. And then I'm going to propose some relationship agreements. And you know, as we often do with these solo episodes, we have created a worksheet for listeners who are subscribed to the newsletter. So you can follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, and then you will get that worksheet in your inbox next week. Part one, let's do some defining and some operationalizing. If we're going to unpack over-functioning, under-functioning dynamics, we have to define our terms. So let's start by getting really clear on what we mean by functioning. What does functioning mean? In doing research for this episode, I found an article by Dr. Will Meek, and he says that functioning is, quote, our ability to manage life, make decisions, manage time and stress, etc., 
to be responsible for the things that we're involved with and to operate as autonomous beings. When we are functioning optimally, we are often keeping a good schedule, staying on top of things, meeting deadlines with work and school, making decisions for ourselves, even if some advice is sought, not taking on more of our share of responsibility, and successfully fulfilling life roles like parent, employee, and partner, end quote. So talking about the overfunctioning, underfunctioning dynamic means that we're talking about a cycle or a perceived cycle that a couple gets into in which one partner is carrying too much of the load and one partner is not carrying enough of the load. And this can happen in any realm of relationship. For example, domestic labor. One partner is doing more chores and more caregiving than the other. Emotion regulation. One partner is doing more work to keep the peace than the other. Interfacing with the outside world, one partner is doing more initiating and scheduling plans with family and friends or more checking in on family and friends than the other. Sex, one partner is doing more initiating than the other or bringing more creative energy and enthusiasm than the other. Finances and ambition around work, one partner is more responsible for finances than the other, or one partner is investing more time and energy in pursuit of career goals than the other. So those are five realms right there, domestic labor, emotion regulation, interfacing with the outside world, sex, finances, slash ambition. I wonder what you might add to that list. Like what's the relationship domain where you might be thinking about or wondering if there is an overfunctioning, underfunctioning dynamic at play? The partner who is in the overfunctioning role does the heavy lifting emotionally, pragmatically, financially, sexually, whatever. And that partner is at risk of sticking all kinds of labels on the partner in the underfunctioning role, right? My partner is lazy. My partner is belligerent. My partner is entitled. My partner is trying to drive me crazy, et cetera. And the person in the overfunctioning role often feels overwhelmed, lonely, and misunderstood. The partner in the underfunctioning role perhaps is waiting to be told what to do, shirking their duties, not keeping their word, kind of retreating, dodging. And that partner is at risk of sticking all kinds of labels on the partner in the overfunctioning role, right? My partner is rigid. My partner is controlling. My partner is naggy. Boy, that word nagging, <laughs> it's like nails on a chalkboard for me. I suspect at some point we're going to do an entire episode about nagging, but we'll just leave it there for now. And oftentimes the partner in the underfunctioning role feels overwhelmed, lonely, and misunderstood. So the same sort of knot of tender, painful feelings, right? Because the dynamic is such that it becomes more polarized. And when we're stuck in any kind of polarized relationship dynamic, that's where we end up emotionally, isn't it? Overwhelmed, lonely, misunderstood. So obviously and understandably, when a couple gets stuck in this kind of pattern, there's a negative impact on the relationship. Right? You're going to see conflict. You're going to see reduced relationship satisfaction, increased distance, disengagement, and lots of resentment. A lot of what I'm going to talk about today is going to feel familiar to those of you who have done some work on the idea of codependence. I will say right up top that what I like about the overfunctioning, underfunctioning language is that it gives us an avenue to explore it as a relational dynamic, as relational roles, versus sometimes the way we talk about codependence is it's almost like it's an individual trait or an individual tendency, like I am codependent. Where here, if we're talking about this, like I'm going to say again and again, overfunctioning, underfunctioning, like even in the way we're languaging it, we're reminding ourselves that it's a cycle, it's a pattern. So these roles are inextricably linked. And when we can keep that in mind, right then and there, it opens up some new avenues for what we can do about it. The partner who's in either the overfunctioning role or the underfunctioning role, it can change depending on the circumstances, depending on the relationship chapter that a couple is in, or depending on the realm. So it's really common to have a partner who is perhaps overfunctioning in the caregiving realm and underfunctioning in the erotic realm, 
or over-functioning around finances, under-functioning around sort of like social plans or emotion regulation. In fact, spoiler alert, <laughs> one of the fastest ways out of feeling resentful about over-functioning, if that's the role that you're feeling like you're in, is to widen out your lens and take a broader perspective, like a bit of a 10,000-foot view of the landscape of your relationship. Because if you do that, what you might see is that there are, in fact, realms where you are in the under-functioning role. We tend to be hyper-focused about the areas in which we are over-functioning, and we tend to be a bit blinded to the areas where we are under-functioning. So that's one of the first takeaways that I really want to invite you into, is if you've kind of got a lot of your attention on one domain where you feel like you're doing all the heavy lifting and your partner isn't, see what happens if you widen out the lens, look at the whole landscape. Is there perhaps another realm where your partner is having a very similar experience of you? And if so, that can just begin to kind of lift and shift that narrative, that kind of it's all on me narrative, and open up some compassion for, ah, all right, my partner does know what this feels like, and I do know what their part feels like. When we talk about them as roles, we can start to get curious about why we might get cast into one of these roles or why we might cast ourselves in one of these roles. And it becomes less about capital T truths about ourselves, our identities, our personalities, and it becomes more about the roles that we are at risk of starting to play in intimate relationships. The last thing I want to do before we wrap up part one is lay out some caveats. You know me and my caveats. My first caveat is in this episode, I am not talking about abusive dynamics in which one partner overfunctions in order to prevent abuse. That's not what we're talking about. I'm also not talking about caregiving. It is not overfunctioning to do things for people that they cannot do for themselves. So if we're talking about a realm in which there is an actual ability difference and partner A caretakes for partner B, that's not what we're talking about. Woven into this overfunctioning, underfunctioning dynamic is this idea that people likely could do more but they're getting kind of trapped in a role and a pattern and a dynamic. And finally, my examples are going to be all about overfunctioning, underfunctioning dynamics in romantic relationships. But I suspect that you're going to find as you listen that a lot of what I talk about in terms of this pattern also applies in friendships, in family relationships, and in workplace dynamics. So as you listen, I really want to invite you to think about the role that you take up in different realms of your life. Perhaps you are an overfunctioner at work, but at home you find yourself getting cast as the underfunctioner in your intimate relationship. When there are inconsistencies like that, I recommend that you get really curious about what's different when I walk in the door of my office versus when I walk in my door at home. Because clearly it's not about an essential truth about who you are as a person. It's something about the part of you that comes forward in one realm that remains hidden in another realm. Or it's about who you think you need to be in one setting versus another setting. Or perhaps what you're going to find as you start to reflect on this is perhaps you find that you are actually an overfunctioner, for example, across the board. <laughs> you do this at work, you do it in your love life, you do it with your friends, you do it with your extended family. This very well might speak to your competence and your ambition, right? These are actually traits of yours, so they show up everywhere you go. But I do want to plant a seed that it might also speak to a longer standing coping strategy in which you find yourself, perhaps unconsciously even, drawn to contexts in which you can again and again put on your cape and save the day. We'll do more on this later, but if it's not an either or, it's a both and. Um, some of you have heard me say before that our gifts and our wounds are very often next door neighbors. So your competence and ambition may very well be 
a gift of yours. And it may also very well be the consequence of a long-standing coping pattern of putting on your cape and being everybody's hero. Part two, a relational self-awareness informed framework for understanding the over-functioning, under-functioning dynamic. As I said before, in this part, I'm going to tighten and widen our lens of analysis. So we're going to look at the cultural piece, the bigger narratives. We're going to look at the interpersonal piece, what happens in the space between people. And we're going to look at the intra-psychic piece, what's happening inside of each person. So let's look at some of the cultural messages that might set a couple up to experience this over-functioning, under-functioning dynamic. A few moments ago, I read to you a working definition of what functioning means. It's basically the ability to meet our responsibilities. And although this seems simple enough, we need to keep in mind a big picture, which is that our notions of what it means to function are deeply and forever informed by how we've been socialized. We, at least I, where I sit here in Chicago, Illinois, in the United States, I've been socialized in capitalism, right? And through, you know, this sort of colonial capitalist lens, my socialization, our socialization deeply impacts how we even think about what counts as functioning, what counts as overfunctioning, and what counts as underfunctioning. Why? Because this realm is about meeting responsibilities. It's about getting stuff done. It's about productivity. And productivity is, at least in part, about capitalism, about participating in a larger system of production, consumption, accomplishment, etc., keeping the economy moving, and continuing to participate in a system that has been built on some rather problematic ideas about work, whose work matters, what counts as good, just, fair, reasonable. And all of that shapes a kind of ethos, which is like a more is better. We should be achieving, not coasting. And in that perspective, rest can start to feel a lot like laziness or moral failure. And that means that the partner who finds themselves in the overfunctioning role can be a little bit holier than thou. And sometimes the partner in the overfunctioning role actually has the backing of family and friends who've been similarly socialized into a sort of productivity as principled mindset. Another big context that matters here is ableism, which is discrimination in favor of able-bodied people. And ableism exists for all kinds of reasons, and one of which is that in a capitalist society, we are at risk of valuing people to the degree that they are able to produce. And if and when a disability impacts someone's ability to produce in the ways that we have defined production, that person is at risk of being perceived as less valuable and less worthy. So although I have tried really hard to be mindful of my assumptions and my biases in prepping this episode, I have every confidence that my blind spots have shaped how I think about and how I talk about this topic, right? I am a white American woman. I've been living in the Midwest my whole life. I'm highly educated. I have generational economic privilege. And so I suspect that the ways I think about and talk about functioning are shaped by these contexts, especially the context of whiteness, colonialism, and capitalism. When we're working on this particular dynamic, we also have to keep gender in mind. There's just no way around it. Cultural narratives around gender have a huge impact on how couples experience the overfunctioning, underfunctioning dynamic. And there's a lot of public discourse these days about a concept called emotional labor. Gemma Hartley wrote an article for Harper's Bazaar called Women Aren't Nags, We're Fed Up. That article has been read over two billion times. In fact, it's on my Marriage 101 syllabus. So <laughs> we're responsible for at least a thousand of those readings. We've linked the article in the show notes so you can take a peek at it. She's a journalist and she addressed the quote, frustration and anger of countless women putting in the hidden, unappreciated and absolutely draining mental work that consists of keeping everyone in their lives comfortable and happy. And she defined the largely invisible but demanding, time-consuming and exhausting worry work 
that falls disproportionately and unfairly on all women, no matter their economic class or level of education. End quote. It is for sure the case that queer couples deal with the challenges of figuring out how to create divisions of labor in their relationships that feel fair and that fuel connection rather than resentment. Trish Bendix wrote an article in Harper's Bazaar on the same issue of emotional labor through the lens of queer couples. And she wrote, quote, same-sex couples are not immune to the same gendered and social rearing that we've all received as children, end quote. And she speaks with queer women who recall receiving both implicit and explicit messaging about silently anticipating and addressing problems and messages that their brothers did not receive by contrast. Bendix goes on to explain, quote, same-sex couples, mine included, are not void of these kinds of dynamics completely. The LGBT community often falls prey to its own labels and roles, butch, femme, top, bottom, etc., and it's inevitable that there will be expectations of both partners that will remain unspoken until they are discussed, end quote. And oftentimes, queer couples find that rather than inequities being mapped necessarily onto gender, they become mapped onto another difference such as earning. The big picture here is that caregiving in general, because it has been long associated with the feminine, has also long been devalued, held in contempt, and rendered invisible. So when a woman is partnered with a man, the force of patriarchal socialization means that they are set up for an overfunctioning, underfunctioning dynamic in the realm of domestic and emotional labor, right? It's just really easy to map onto a straight couple a traditional division of labor in the home that replicates generations of how families have assigned these roles. The struggle that many men experience around fears of being associated with the feminine, it's really real, it's really pervasive, and it very often is beneath conscious awareness. And I want to give you a powerful example of this. There's some research that was done in 2011. University of South Florida psychologists Jennifer Bosson and Joseph Vandeo. They published a paper in a journal called Current Directions in Psychological Science, and their research team was studying what we call precarious manhood, which is the idea that masculinity needs to be enacted and proven again and again in an ongoing way, that masculinity is in fact defined by achievements, not biology. These two scientists brought men into the lab, and they forced them to behave in a, quote, feminine manner. And then they studied what happened. So in one study, for example, some men braided hair and other men did the more, quote, masculine task of braiding rope. And then all of these men afterwards were given the choice to either punch a bag or do a puzzle. And the men who braided hair overwhelmingly chose to punch the bag. In another study, when one group of men braided hair and the other group of men did not, and then all of the men went on to punch the bag, the men who had braided hair were found to punch harder. And in a final study, all of the men braided hair, but only some of the men got to punch the bag after. The men who did not punch the bag showed more anxiety on a subsequent task. Oh my gosh. So the bottom line is this. When men engage in tasks that are deemed feminine, they feel a need to counteract it with some kind of something masculine that feels restorative or restabilizing. I don't know that these men were saying it out loud, right? They weren't saying like, oh, I just braided hair. I have to undo it or I have to restore my manhood. It's that subtle, sneaky, unconscious, pervasive socialization, right? That's the fallout of socialization, that need to prove oneself again and again. Through this lens, it makes some sense that feminine tasks like laundry, childcare, wrapping gifts are avoided, right? Because if the sense is, if I do that task, I just have gone one down and I got to restore myself after I do the task, it makes sense that that whole situation gets avoided. And this is not an excuse 
but it is a context, right? I'm highlighting that research because it really does show us how the wind is at our face around inequities in domestic labor and emotional labor. Gender dynamics are incredibly real. Inequitable divisions of labor are incredibly real. And they hold the power to erode intimate relationships. Findings from a survey, it's called the NATSAL 3. It's the National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles. That survey found that 21.2% of married women aged 16 to 74 reported not sharing enough housework as a reason for their live-in partnership breaking down, for their divorce happening. So it's a big, significant problem. And I will say that if the paradigm is going to get subverted, it has to get done consciously and intentionally. And it has to be done with the buy-in of both partners. The person in the culturally ascribed one-down position cannot change the system on their own. You've got to change the system with the buy-in of both partners. And sometimes, listen, she ends up feeling like she's in a catch-22. If she asks her partner for, quote, help, then it proves right then and there that the task is hers until and unless she delegates it. But if she doesn't ask for, quote, help, and she does it herself, she replicates a traditional division of labor. She perpetuates an overfunctioning, underfunctioning dynamic, and resentment is going to get fueled in their relationship. The way out of this catch-22 is for him to begin to notice and work with her on it. And he can start by thinking critically about how powerful socialization is and how it shapes his perceptions of domestic and emotional labor. He also can examine his family of origin dynamics, you know, what he saw when he was a little boy. How did he see the big people in his home handling divisions of labor? And that can help him get really clear on the perspective that he's coming in with. It also is really just helpful for both of them to drop the word help from their vocabulary, right? Because to help implies that you are doing something above and beyond. And to really think about this as it's our home together, these responsibilities are shared together. And then finally, he can learn to scan. A lot of times what women will report is that their partner, their male partner will step up as long as she asks. And then it becomes like that kind of conductor role or manager role. It's another element of emotional, mental strain. So he can start to practice that skill of scanning, like noticing what needs to be done, anticipating what might be happening next, even going so far as to put alarms in his phone to remind him. Before we leave this section, I want to recommend a wonderful resource, which is Eve Rodsky's book, Fair Play, as well as her card deck. She's an attorney by training, and she spent a lot of time diving into the research about the invisible labor that women do inside of their homes. And she went on to write a best-selling book and creating a card deck that couples can use to protect their relationship from the grind of inequitable divisions of labor. So you can find a link to Eve's book in our show notes. All right. So we finished up the cultural realm. Let's move into the interpersonal realm. We're going to talk now about the interpersonal dynamics, the space between you and your partner. Let's imagine a couple coming into therapy. Partner A is feeling resentful that they're doing so much. They're feeling overburdened. They're feeling critical of their partner. And then partner B is defensive, diminishing partner A's concerns, feeling critical of partner A. The couple's therapist's first order of business is to help this couple really start to see it as a dynamic, as a pattern that's playing out between the two of them. And that can take a while and that can be a tough sell because partner A can feel actually quite convinced that their relationship would improve if partner B would just step up and handle themselves. And partner B, for their part, can feel very, very convinced that their relationship would just get better if partner A would stop micromanaging, complaining, and catching every little thing. What we have to do here, what the couples therapist has to do here is help this couple move from pointing fingers to looking at the choreography. 
and really starting to get their heads and their hearts around the idea that the more partner A overfunctions, the more partner B underfunctions. And the more partner B underfunctions, the more partner A overfunctions. These roles are entwined and it becomes a dance. The more I do this, the more you do this. What this means is that if either one of them changes their dance moves, the dance can't continue in the same way. And if this is a dynamic, then each position is a role rather than a capital T truth. It's important also for the couples therapist to really be languaging it that way. You're in this role and your partner's in this role uh, because that part of it also starts to lift the heavy blanket of casting this as a personality trait, right? So if I've spent a lot of time describing my partner as lazy or stubborn or narcissistic, then starting to practice the idea that this is a dynamic, they've gotten stuck in a role, I've gotten stuck in a role, it can start to shift then how I perceive my partner, right? If I'm convinced my partner is lazy, I'm searching for evidence that supports that hypothesis and I'm likely missing evidence that challenges that hypothesis. So starting to say things like, my partner underfunctions relative to me in this domain, right? My partner is in an underfunctioning role in this domain. Like that's a subtle but important shift in language that can start to shift how people feel about the dynamic and can start to shift what people do about the dynamic. So the question becomes, how would a couples therapist start to create change? Does the couples therapist create change by helping the underfunctioning partner step up and try harder? Or does the couples therapist help the overfunctioning partner practice stepping back and letting go? And the answer is sure. Years ago, when I was at a training with Dr. Les Greenberg and Dr. Rhonda Goldman, who are the founders of Emotionally Focused Therapy, They were talking about a variation on this theme. They were talking about when there's a pursuer, when there's a distancer. In other words, when there's one person seeking contact and another another person avoiding and retreating. So a similar dance as the one we're talking about today. And one of the therapists in the audience asked the question, like, what do you do first? Do you help the pursuer stop pursuing or do you help the distancer stop distancing? And Dr. Les Greenberg's response was to quote a Chinese proverb that says, you dig where the ground is soft. In other words, the therapist feels out where there's a little bit of leverage, knowing that facilitating change in one part of a system changes the system. If you change your dance moves, the dance can't continue in the same way that it does, right? Change your dance moves. If you don't do what you've always done, your partner can't do what they've always done. And The only person you can change is yourself. But remember that changing yourself does change the system. So don't underestimate your own power. If you're the overfunctioner, challenge yourself to consider where you might be able to experiment. Where might you be able to back off, let go, surrender, even if that means something falls through the cracks, even if it means that you might experience some anxiety, even if it means that your partner might feel a little bit disappointed or they might struggle if you don't do what you've always done. If you're the underfunctioning partner, challenge yourself to consider where you might be able to step up. Where might you be able to anticipate, look ahead, initiate, even if that means you have to tolerate the discomfort of worrying that you're going to do it wrong or worrying that your partner's going to be, you know, rejecting. And even if it means that your partner doesn't like how you did something. Quick side note, when the person in the underfunctioning role steps up, it is incumbent on the person in the overfunctioning role to resist the urge to critique how their partner does that thing. When our kids were little, I was for sure in the overfunctioning role, like a lot of moms, around morning routines specifically. So I must have requested change. And Todd agreed to step up and do more of the morning routine. And I remember him one time bringing Courtney downstairs. She was a little baby, bringing her down in some crazy ass outfit. And I remember consciously saying to myself, do not say a word. 
Focus on the fact that he stepped up rather than on the fact that this baby is wearing, you know, red pants and a purple top. (laughs) What we focus on, we get more of, right? And also resist the urge to say, you only did that because I told you to do it. You only did it because I asked you to do it, right? What we focus on, we get more of. Okay, let's tighten up our lens a little bit more and do some intra-psychic. Let's look at some of the dynamics that happen inside of the person in the overfunctioning role and inside of the person in the underfunctioning role. So if you have been finding yourself identifying with one of these positions more than the other one, this suggests that you have a valence or a tendency towards that role. And I want to invite you to do a little bit of what I call ghost busting and look at how experiences from your past might have created that valence inside of you. So what is it about your early experiences that may have primed you to move into that role in your intimate relationships? The origin story is going to be unique to you, but let me offer a few possibilities and just see if any of them land. A tendency to overfunction can come from perhaps being a parentified child when you were little If your parent turned to you as a source of comfort and validation, this means that you had relatively fewer experiences of asking for help, receiving help, and fewer experiences of people accommodating to you. So you might therefore just fill in all the space by being helpful and necessary and in charge. Perhaps your overfunctioning comes from growing up in a home where a parent struggled, for example, with untreated mental health challenges or with addiction. If your parent had a hard time meeting their responsibilities, you might cope with a fear of not being able to meet your responsibilities by living on overdrive, right? So busy to you might feel like an inoculation against a risk of depression or despair. What about a tendency to underfunction? Taking up a valence towards the underfunctioning role can come from perhaps being a child who acted up when you were little. And maybe even you acted up and had behavior problems when you were little as a way perhaps to distract your parents from the conflict between them, or perhaps as a way to ensure that your parents had to stick together in order to deal with you. Another possibility might be perhaps you grew up in a home with really domineering parents who struggled to give you autonomy, space, agency. So if you were micromanaged when you were a kid, you might therefore struggle to step in and take charge of your life. Connecting the dots between your past and your present can help you understand yourself more deeply. And connecting the dots between your partner's past and present, can help you understand them more deeply, perhaps helping you feel a bit less critical and a bit more compassionate. History is not an excuse, but it surely is a context. So I want to talk a little bit to the overfunctioner and then a little bit to the underfunctioner. In each of these pieces, I'm going to offer some relational self-awareness questions to folks who are in each of these roles. And these questions are on the worksheet that will be included in next week's newsletter for listeners who are subscribed. And once again, the link to join our weekly newsletter is in the show notes of this episode. Okay, overfunctioning partners of the world, let's talk. (laughs) Stepping back can be really hard. Letting go of control can be really hard. You may very well have spent years creating a sense of safety through order and allowing for more unpredictability or tolerating how someone does things differently than you do them can just feel upsetting. Not because you're a control freak, but because this is a long-standing coping mechanism. If you decide to try stepping back, I think it's really okay to cue your partner and be like, hey, heads up, I'm letting go here. It's not a threat, like you better make sure you do it and that you do it the right way because I'm letting go. It's more like an invitation. It's an opportunity for your partner to recognize that you are making an effort to change a pattern. So cueing your partner, like, heads up, look at me, I'm letting go, 
it's a way of saying like, I'm so invested in our relationship. I'm so invested in changing my part of this pattern that I'm letting go, right? So not a threat, not a demand, just an alert so that your partner knows that you're trying and they can notice your effort. In fact, that was another takeaway I got from the very same Dr. Les Greenberg and Dr. Rhonda Goldman workshop was that that's actually how change happens. Change happens in a couple system when, in this example, the overfunctioning person lets go, like they change their move. That's an important part of creating change. But what these guys found in their research is that change doesn't really cement until and unless the other person here, the underfunctioning partner, notices it. Like the loop has to get complete. I have to change my behavior and you have to notice the change in my behavior and shift yourself accordingly, right? It's not just my change. It's my change that I do and then you change in response to me and then I get the gift of watching you respond differently. And that becomes an intrinsic reward for my efforts, right? You are more vibrant. Like I changed something. I watched you step in. You seem more vibrant. I feel more relaxed and that that becomes rather than a vicious cycle, more of a virtuous cycle. So stepping back can also be hard because there can be some hidden benefits of overfunctioning. Perhaps, for example, other people express admiration for you about how much you do in your relationship. And this might feel to you like a self-esteem booster. Or perhaps you maybe have developed a little bit of a martyr syndrome going on in which you've become a bit invested in letting people know how hard you're working in your relationship and maybe a little bit invested in the sympathy that people offer to you. And we're all at risk of these kind of like less than ideal routes to feeling worthy. So just notice if that's a pattern perhaps for you, that maybe you do have a little bit of a hidden benefit, a little bit of like a kind of perk, a bonus side effect of overfunctioning. And try to remember that you actually were born fully worthy with nothing to prove. You do not need to earn your worth by overfunctioning. And you don't need to work hard in order to feel worthy of partnership either. Okay, relational self-awareness questions for you, my darling overfunctioning partner. I've got eight of them. And again, they're on the worksheet. Question one, and I've languaged these in the first person because these are your journal entry questions or mindful meditation questions. Okay, question one, what does overfunctioning protect me from feeling? Two, what do I believe to be true about myself when I am overfunctioning? Three, what is it that keeps me from letting go of management, leadership, control in this area of my relationship? Question four, what am I afraid is going to happen if I let go of management, leadership, control in this area? What am I dreading? And if that dreaded situation were to play out, how would I feel? Question five, who do I feel like I become if I let go of management, leadership, control in this area? In other words, if I lose my identity or my role in this area, how would I feel? Question six, what does it mean for me if somebody else, i.e. my partner, has more management, leadership, control in this area than I do? Question seven, am I perhaps overfunctioning to protect my partner from the anger and disappointment that I would feel and perhaps unleash if I were to let go and they didn't step up? Question eight, am I perhaps overfunctioning to protect myself from the anger and disappointment that I would feel and perhaps unleash if I were to let go and my partner didn't step up? <laughs> okay. I adore you. Those are challenging questions. Just take them slowly, 
bite by bite, I'm just inviting you to connect some dots around this role that you've gotten yourself into, the roots it may have, the hidden investments, little sneaky sub-narratives that are going on. So sit with those questions in a very, very, very gentle way. All right, here you go. Under-functioning partner, let me talk to you for a moment. One of the things that can happen to the person in the under-functioning role is that you can feel like you're being perpetually criticized. Because you can't control your partner and because feeling perpetually criticized can feel awfully helpless, I want to challenge you to see what might you be able to do differently. If you hate it when your partner reminds you of something, set an alarm on your phone or write yourself a note. If you don't like being given a task, see if there's a way that you could take initiative instead. If you're sensitive to feeling controlled, directed, micromanaged, criticized, take back your power by flipping the dynamic and putting yourself in the driver's seat. I want to also challenge you to keep your eye out for whether or not perhaps you're doing this thing that we call weaponized incompetence or strategic incompetence. There was a 2008 article in The Guardian that defined strategic incompetence as the art of avoiding undesirable tasks by pretending to be unable to do them. (laughs) This is more of a popular like buzzword than a scientifically backed phenomenon in the literature, but it's a sneaky one, right? And so I'm just going to challenge you a bit to maybe get real with yourself? Are you perhaps kind of acting like you don't know how to do things or things are too hard for you because actually, in fact, they're just unpleasant things? If this does land for you, if part of your underfunctioning is that you kind of feel like you shouldn't have to do it or it's not that fun so you don't do it, I really do want you to frame for yourself that your goal is to feel like you get a reward when you step up. And the reward you likely get when you step up is your partner's happiness, the smile on their face, your partner's relief. And I want you to start to notice and see if you can like train your brain to start to code that reward as greater than the reward you get by avoiding. There's a reward for avoiding. The reward you get for avoiding is that you don't have to do the thing that is onerous and unpleasant. But I bet you could start to shift your mindset and train your brain such that the reward that you get when you do step up, your partner's happiness, your partner's relief, the big old smile on their face, that that becomes bigger and juicier and more worth it than the reward that you get for avoiding it. But I will say, and I've seen this time and time again with couples in therapy with me, that sometimes the person in the underfunctioning role can get themselves further stuck there because if they start to do the things that their partner wants them to do, they end up being at risk of feeling like they're a doormat or they're weak or they're just like taking care of everybody else or something like that. And when I see this pattern happening, to an underfunctioning partner that I'm doing therapy with, I get very explicit and very loud about the need to feel really and truly proud of being who your partner wants you to be, rather than ashamed that you accommodated your partner's request. I mean, that's the heart of being relational, right? In a relationship, we want to be the kind of people who strive to do the kinds of things that put smiles on our partner's faces. That's not subjugation. That's not being a sucker. That's being relational. And that is worthy of feeling very, very proud of yourself. Like literally like pat on the back, proud of yourself. And I get it. Stepping up can be hard. You might be afraid of over-promising and under-delivering. And if that's the case, It's really, really okay to let your partner know that. It's really, really okay to want to have your efforts at change recognized, even if they're small, 
even if they're imperfect, even if your partner has been asking for them for a long time. So get clear on the kind of praise or the kind of feedback that you'd like from your partner and the kind that you wouldn't like. I've definitely had clients who actually don't want their partner to acknowledge their efforts because it can be very hard for them to feel the difference between being praised and being patronized. So check in with yourself and get clear on that. Maybe you don't want your partner to say anything when you step up, but maybe you do. Maybe you want some words of affirmation. Maybe you want a makeout session. Maybe you want a happy dance. Maybe you just want a fist bump. But notice like that part of the loop. If I do step up and if I do feel proud of myself, what do I want and need from my partner in response? And then the last point I want to make to you, darling, underfunctioning partner, is keep in mind this principle that comes to us from the world of cognitive behavioral therapy. It's called behavioral activation. Behavioral activation means rather than waiting until you feel like doing something, just doing it. While it's easier to get motivated to do things that we actually feel like doing, we can motivate ourselves to do things just because we made ourselves a promise or just because we set an alarm or just because we said we would. You don't have to wait until you feel like doing something to do it. All right. And here are your relational self-awareness questions. There's also eight of them and they're also on the worksheet. Question one, what is the origin story for my underfunctioning. Question two, am I afraid of overpromising and underdelivering? Why? What does that scenario remind me of? Question three, what happens inside of me when somebody I care about is disappointed in me? Question four, what hidden benefits might I be getting from my underfunctioning role? Question five, when I think about stepping up, What emotions come up inside of me? How does my body feel? Question six, if I was to get real, real honest with myself, is there potentially a way in which I feel like the realm I'm avoiding or over-functioning in is a realm that is actually beneath me? Like I shouldn't have to do that. If so, whose story is that? Question seven, when I step up, How do I want my partner to acknowledge my efforts? Why? Question eight. When I step up, how do I not want my partner to acknowledge my efforts? Why not? Okay. Part three. Let's make some relational agreements. So I broke these down into two categories. The first is a set of relational agreements that are about If you actually, as a couple, want to work to change the dynamic, and the second set is a set of relational agreements to try if you and your partner want to work to accept the dynamic. So if you and your partner do want to work to change this over-functioning, under-functioning dynamic, I suggest that you, one, talk together about the realm that feels inequitable. So get very, very specific. Rather than making global generalizations about the relationship, we are an overfunctioning, underfunctioning couple. Get specific. What realm are you talking about? Division of labor, emotion regulation, interfacing with the outside world, sex, finances, ambition, et cetera. So first thing I want you to do is just get specific about what realm are we talking about? Agree together that you are going to rock the boat agree together that you are going to shake things up, right? We are going to shake things up. And here again, it's like, you know, you hear me talk a lot about the position I want you to be in is shoulder to shoulder looking together at the problem. So here it's we're shoulder to shoulder looking together at the problem, which is that in this realm, we have slipped into some over-functioning, under-functioning. So, okay, we are agreeing to rock the boat. We're agreeing to shake things up and we're just going to see what happens. Question three is, you know, say out loud explicitly together that if either of us changes, then the whole system changes, right? So recognizing that either of your efforts is going to make a difference. Agreement four is make your agreements from a place of curiosity, 
and from a place of just data collection, right? When you do it that way, when you say, we're just going to try it differently, the stakes are low. It becomes less daunting. It becomes less like the whole relationship hangs in the balance. It's like, we're just going to try and play with it and see what happens and circle back up in a week and see how we're doing. And then get as specific as you can. What will you do differently? For how long? How often? And when are you going to follow up with each other? And then the last one is something I've hinted at before. Get very specific about the kind of feedback that each of you is going to be wanting and needing from the other as you try some different dance moves out. And then let's talk about the kinds of relationship agreements that I would like you to make if what you're going to do is just work on radical acceptance. Because I tell you what, sometimes the change that happens is the people start to do things differently. But sometimes the change that happens is that people work to let go of the wish that things were different, that people work to deeply and radically accept the way things are. And that is work and that counts. And that is in fact a change, right? Because the change is letting go of the wish and the desire and the arguing with reality. So here we go. If you are going to try with your partner to work on radical acceptance of the overfunctioning, underfunctioning dynamic, the first thing I want you to do is again get very specific about the realm you're talking about. And then I want you to agree to radically accept the way things are. And then I want you to agree that neither one of you are going to do anything differently than you're doing it now except that you're going to look at what is beautiful, functional, and uniquely yours about how your partner handles themselves. That's the only change. The only change is when you do the thing you do, I am going to take on a practice of noticing what's beautiful, functional, and so uniquely you and so uniquely us about that way that we do things. For example, when your partner goes to take a nap on Saturday afternoon, and this typifies them in their underfunctioning role, you could just take a moment and be grateful that they are resting after a long week. Or you could allow yourself <laughs> in the face of their nap to give yourself permission to rest and to remind yourself that you also could have what they have. You could say, ah, Look at my partner being a teacher to me in this moment, reminding me that I also could rest. Here's another example of what that might look like. When your partner works late, if that typifies them in the overfunctioning role, you could take a moment and just be deeply grateful for their work ethic, right? You could be really grateful and appreciative of what that says to you about who they are, about what they value. And you can see if you can remember that that's part of what made you fall in love with them in the first place. You could even go so far as to ask them, is there anything I could bring to you as you burn the midnight oil? Right? So that's radical acceptance rather than saying, here you go again. You always do this. You're a workaholic. It is saying, I radically accept that this is how you are moving through the world right now. And I can see the benefit and the beauty to you and to us. And I wonder if I could support you as you do that. And then the last piece of the agreement would be just to talk together about how you want to share insights and appreciations as you practice this radical acceptance. Do you want your partner to let you know when they have noticed you overfunctioning and when they have found a way to feel appreciative of what you're doing? Or do you not want that? Okay, my dears, whoo, we covered a lot of ground. I am excited for you to let all this good stuff settle in. I feel confident that you're going to come away from this episode with some new perspectives on a common and complex relationship dynamic. And I think you're going to have some new perspectives that can help you create meaningful shifts or whether that meaningful shift is that you and your partner start to do things differently or if that meaningful shift is that you and your partner start to radically accept the way that the two of you do things. And I hope that whatever you do with the contents of this episode, that it helps you feel more connected and more engaged. So until next time, be well. 
Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.